I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 24. Matthew 24, the title of the message today is, What About the Future? We don't do real well predicting the future. We'd love to think that we've got a grasp on things that are going to happen, but this week I was reading just some of the predictions of prior years. In 1926, the inventor of the tube that would eventually go into a television said this. He said, theoretically, television may be feasible, but I consider it an impossibility, a development which we should waste little time dreaming about. 1926. In 1943, Thomas J. Watson, the chairman of the board of IBM, said this. Listen, I think there's a world market for about five computers. In 1962, a recording expert, recording company expert said, we don't think the Beatles will do anything in their market. Guitar groups are on their way out. We're often wrong, but never in doubt about the future, right? No, we're in doubt a lot about the future. My favorite story I read this week was about a frog that went to a fortune teller. The fortune teller looked into her crystal ball and said, You're going to meet a beautiful young woman. From the moment she sets eyes on you, she will have an insatiable desire to know all about you. She will be compelled to get close to you. You will fascinate her. The frog said, Where am I? At a singles club? She said, No, you're in a biology classroom. <laughs> So the future, is the future bright or not? I have conversations with people these days that are real worried about the future. They're worried about an upcoming election. They're worried about the future of our country. And I do encourage you to pray for that. But you know what? Regardless of who wins the election, God is still on His throne. Jesus is still coming back. In fact, I've read the end of the book. It will get worse before it gets better. But it's going to get better. The disciples were very interested in the future. And so this morning, we're going to look at a snapshot of a conversation they had with Jesus. Just to give you the context of this message, this is chapter 24. Jesus has already entered Jerusalem. They've had Palm Sunday. The crowds have cried out, Hosanna, the Messiah, the Son of David. It's now either Tuesday or Wednesday, and we looked last week. Jesus spent a lot of time on this day teaching in the temple. A lot, chapter 22 and 23 and now into 24, a lot of teaching. And the teaching is now over. He's walking away from the temple. And he makes a comment. The disciples ask him a question. Let me read verses 1 through 14. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up to point out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another, which will not be torn down. As he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See to it that you're not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. 
Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness has increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. So Jesus has been teaching. He's now walking out of the temple area. In fact, he's heading across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. Not a long walk. I've made it before. You get on the Mount of Olives, you can look back at the temple. And so apparently as they're leading, leaving the temple precinct, the disciples are kind of like tourists. <laughs> they're looking around and saying, just look at the magnificence of this structure, this temple. In fact, it was magnificent. We're told by historians, in fact, there's still some stones that are uh, still around. They believe the stones were, were 14 feet, no, 40 feet wide, 12 feet long, and 12 feet deep. Some of the stones at the base weighed 200,000 pounds. They were marble. They had to be brought in from a distance of many miles. So we're talking of thousands of people that had to put their backs into getting these stones into place. It was a marvelous sight. It was plated in gold. As the sun shone on it, some scholars say you couldn't even look at it. It was so brilliant, so bright, the sun gleaming off the temple. So from wherever they were from, and keep in mind the disciples, most of them were from the Galilee region. They had never seen anything like this except when they made pilgrims, pilgrimages to Jerusalem, and, and they did that. As a faithful Jew, you would go at least once a year, and probably more often than that. But everybody was there at this time of the year for the Passover. And so they're looking at this and just saying, Jesus, look at this. This is incredible. This is fantastic. In fact, probably some pride of just look what man has been able to accomplish. And Jesus says, do you not see all these things? Truly, I say to you, with emphatic emphasis, he's saying this is trustworthy, firm. You can bank on this. All of these stones that you see are one day, one of them was not going to be standing on top of the other one anymore. This place is going to come to ruin. Now, when was that going to happen? This occurred in about 30 A.D., in 70 A.D., the Roman army, which they're already under Roman occupation, the Roman army is going to surround the city of Jerusalem, and they are going to destroy. They're going to encroach and destroy the temple. In fact, what's worse than the destruction is they're going to start offering sacrifices to pagan gods at the temple site. The temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. So about 40 years after Jesus says this, it's going to come to pass. We think that the Gospel of Matthew is probably written about 10 years before this happened, so it hadn't happened yet. But Jesus says, look at all this. All of this is going to be destroyed. Apparently they continue walking, and they get over to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus sits down, and the disciples are processing all this in their mind, and so they ask him some more questions. In fact, we know from Mark's gospel that it's four disciples that come and ask on behalf of the 11 now, or 12, there's still 12, 12 disciples, four of them, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, ask these questions. First one is, when will these things happen? And then what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? 
So they're really asking several things. They're asking, well, Jesus, you're saying that there's coming a day when no stone's going to be on top of another. In other words, you're saying this temple is going to be destroyed. First of all, when's that going to happen? Then they're asking, what's going to be a sign? Give us some markers. Give us some indication of when you're going to come in your kingdom. And so first, when will this happen? When will these things happen? You ever, you ever traveled long distance with young children? What's the question you get asked when you're in the car, you're on your way to Disney World, you've been 30 minutes from the house, are we there yet? <laughs> or how much further? Well, compound that. I was a youth pastor for a number of years, so compound that with driving a church van, and you got like 15 teenagers behind you. How much further? My, my standard answer was about that far. Because look at a map, it was only, you know, from that, it was only about that far. So they got kind of used to that answer. No, how many more miles? How much longer? And that's really what the disciples were saying. Now keep in mind, the disciples had no concept, no understanding. Even though Jesus had told them, the disciples did not understand that Jesus was leaving. But they had just watched him receive the adulation of the crowd, declared Messiah, King, Son of David. And so they believe probably by the end of the Passover. They're thinking in just a few days he's going to come into his kingdom. This Roman occupation is going to be over. Jesus is going to set up his kingdoms and kingdom, and they're probably thinking, and we're going to be pretty much key players in all of this. So when's this going to happen, Jesus? They're not thinking 40 years later. And the rest of the prophecy is going to talk about 2,000 years and more later. They're thinking a matter of days. Now, if this is Tuesday or Wednesday of the Passion Week, we're only a couple of days away from Jesus being arrested and crucified. And every time Jesus tried to broach that subject, they only heard the arrest part and the death part. They didn't hear the part about rising from the dead. He said it, but they didn't really get it. And we could understand that. We wouldn't have gotten it either. It didn't make sense to them. So when is all of this going to happen? Well, the first thing is, when's this destruction going to take place? But then there's another part of it. What are going to be the signs of you coming in your kingdom in the end of the age? This is the longest answer. Jesus is going to take two chapters to answer these three questions. What we're focusing on this morning, I believe, is future prophecy. And then starting in verse 15, he starts prophesying about what's about to take place in AD 70 when the city is overrun. But we're focusing now on him truly coming in his kingdom. So what's going to be these signs, these indications, this token by which we can distinguish that we're close, that you're almost ready to come into your kingdom? And so the first question I ask is, why did Jesus go away in the first place? Jesus was already there. Why didn't he go ahead and set up his kingdom? Well, if he had, you and I wouldn't be here. God had a plan. A plan since the beginning of the world. And that was for us to last at least this long before He comes back. And I think it's even indicated when Jesus ascended into heaven, if you remember this, after the resurrection, 40 days afterwards, they're standing on the same Mount of Olives and Jesus ascends into heaven and they're just sitting there with their mouth open wide. And the angels come up and say, why are you still looking into heaven? I think the reason they were looking into heaven is they thought He was coming right back. They didn't know He was going to be gone for a couple thousand years. The angel said, this same Jesus that you saw leave is coming back. 
But what did he tell you to do? He told you to go wait until the Holy Spirit's come upon you and then be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the world. He's given you a job to do, and it's not to go like this. And I would say today, we still don't need to spend a lot of our time going. Because verse 14 that we'll get to in a minute says, this is when the end will come, when the gospel's been proclaimed. That's our job. Proclaim the gospel. So when is this end going to come? Why did he go away? Well, see, he had already told them in John's gospel, in chapter 14, he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And I'm going away so that I can come again and receive you and so that you will be where I am. Now, you and I read that. We've heard that passage, but it doesn't mean everything to us that it would mean to a Jewish man or woman. Because he's talking about a wedding ceremony. In the first century, in the time of Jewish, this time of Jewish culture, when a man was ready to marry a young lady, he would go over to the young lady's house and have a meeting with her father. And this is more than just asking permission to marry. This is a marriage contract is worked out and sealed. And a lot of stuff happens, but the best thing that happens is the young man will get up and say, I go now to prepare a place. And typically the place he prepared was just an addition to the house that he grew up in. And the work would be overseen by his father. So the groom, I'm going away to prepare a place. My dad's going to kind of look over my shoulder. He's going to tell me when it's ready. And he's going to say, okay, go get your bride. That's why we get the parable in the next chapter of the unwise virgins. They don't know exactly when the groom's coming. They know it soon. So some of them have oil prepared and their lamps are ready. Some of them aren't. And all of a sudden, they hear coming through the street. Here comes the groom. They're about to have the wedding celebration. So for a Jew to hear Jesus say, I'm going away to prepare a place, that made sense to them. It needs to make sense to us. Why did Jesus go away? He's gone away to prepare a place. How long has he been working on it? 2,000 years. Who's been overseeing it? The Heavenly Father. And Jesus doesn't know the time. He says that later in the chapter. But the Father does. And when it's ready, He's coming back. One of my favorite things is, we look at this world and think, man, heaven couldn't be any better than this. How long did it take God to create this? Six days. How long has He been working on our heavenly home? 2,000 years. Don't get too used to this, because what is in store for us is so much better than this. But Jesus has gone away but he's coming back, and there'll be a time when the age ends. So the next part of the chapter, these verses 4 through 13, Jesus cares for these disciples, and he cares for us by extension. He wants us to be prepared. So he says, see to it that no one misleads you. What does Jesus know is going to happen? There's going to be people that try to mislead the people of God about the return of of Christ. The rest of the New Testament, there, there's passages that talk about the return. One of the things that's going to happen is people are going to start saying, well, he's not coming back. He's been gone a long time. If he was going to come back, he'd have come back by now. You're crazy to keep waiting on this Jesus who said he's coming back. For crying out loud, it's been 2,000 years. What does the Bible say? Don't count his slowness. His delay in coming is in slowness, but count it as part of his mercy that he's not willing that any should perish. And so the good news is, 
that God has still given us an opportunity to respond to the gospel. And so, yeah, he hadn't come back yet. You'll know it when he does. Isn't it amazing that in the history since the first century, there have been people that have set dates? For some reason, it seems like October is a good month. People have set dates a lot of times in October. I remember standing at a payphone in Atlanta, Georgia. These two custom vans came in. They had stick-on lettering all over the side. It said, get ready, Jesus is coming. had a date. I mean, a month, a day of the month, and a year, and it was soon. And then what happens when Jesus doesn't come back? Well, we miscalculated. So it's going to be next month. <laughs> no. What does the Bible say? We don't know the day or the hour, but we can discern the times. And so Jesus says this is what to look for. He said, many are going to come and say, I am the Christ. Literally, there's going to be a lot of people that want to claim to be the Messiah. And by the way, they had already been doing that before Jesus came the first time. There have been people thinking, hey, I'm the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because the Old Testament had said the Messiah is coming. The Jews were looking for the Messiah. So it's nothing new. It's just gotten worse. So people are going to come and say, follow me. We know some of these people. The Reverend Moon, for example. The Reverend Moon's theory is when Jesus came... He was crucified. God didn't plan on that. God was up in heaven going, oops, didn't mean for that to happen. I need somebody else to go. So guess who the Reverend Moon thought needed to go and finish Jesus' uncompleted work? He thought that was his job. So the Moonies are following this Reverend Sun Myung Moon who says, I'm the Messiah. But we've had the, the David Koresh's and the Jim Jones and the false messiahs that have basically said, follow me. They've either claimed to be the Messiah or they claimed in the name of Jesus to speak for him. Be careful. Be careful. What do we look for in a false prophet? Well, first of all, don't be looking for false prophets. But, but if somebody comes to you with something other than the Word of God, and they may speak it eloquently, may seem like they have authority, but trust me, if their message does not square with Scripture, they are lying. They're a false prophet. They're a false Messiah. And Jesus said, before I come back, many, they may have television shows. They may be on the radio. They may have written books. Be careful if the message doesn't square with the gospel. They're dangerous. And they're going to mislead many. Literally, they're going to cause many people to roam and think they're doing religious things, but that's all it is, is religion. You're going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. We think, could it be possible there's more wars than we're dealing with now? A historian has counted the wars. From A.D. 1 to A.D. 100, there were about seven wars. From A.D. 100 to 1500, there are about another seven wars. From 1500 to 1942, 73 wars. What happened in 1942? The end of World War II. It was the war to end all wars. I wasn't alive yet either, so if you weren't alive, it's okay. It's a long time ago. There's people here that remember this. My father fought in World War II. It was the war to end all wars. They didn't think there'd be any more wars after 1942. Since 1942, there have been over 140 wars, claiming millions and millions and millions of lives. That's bad, but it's going to get worse. And not only are there going to be wars, there's going to be Rumors of wars and threats of wars. Jesus says, see that you're not frightened. Why? Why wouldn't we be frightened? 
This must take place. Again, God's not up in heaven going, oops. God's telling us ahead of time, this is going to happen. So don't be frightened. Don't be caught off guard. Don't be alarmed. And certainly don't be led astray. These things must take place. It means that the plan of God is unfolding right before our eyes. But it's not yet the end. Then he goes on. Nations will rise against nations. Kingdom against kingdom. Literally, ethnos. Nation meant ethnos. So tribe groups or or even racial groups will rise up against each other. And then kingdoms, royalty and rule and realm that has a king, they're going to rise up against each other in various places. There's going to be famines and earthquakes. There's going to be places where people don't have enough to eat. And people will die of starvation. If you read the book of Revelation, you see part of the reason that there's not going to be anything to eat is the wrath of God is going to be poured out. And part of the earth gets destroyed. And whether you're premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, you decide whether the church is going to be there or not. I think the reason all hell breaks loose is because the church isn't there. There's going to be famines. There's going to be earthquakes. In fact, the word earthquake is the word seismos. It literally means a commotion of the air or the ground. So it basically means tsunamis, tornadoes, hurricanes, cyclones, and disturbances of the ground, earthquakes. If you read Revelation, you see all of this unpacked as part of the wrath judgments of God. All that's going to be taking place. But he says these are merely the beginning of birth pains. Now, we have four children in our family, and so I've learned a little bit about birth pains. They don't typically take place at the beginning of the pregnancy. When do birth pains take place? Right at the end. So when the birth pains start taking place, and guys, I'm talking about birth pains for the woman, not for the man. You know, it's a lot of men going in, give me some drugs. I need an epidural. No. The birth pains take place within minutes or hours of a birth. So Jesus is telling them, and really, He's telling us, here's what to look for, here's the signs before I come back. All this is going to be taking place. And it hasn't caught me off guard. It's part of the plan. But it's just the beginning. And then he goes from the general to the specifics. And he really goes from what's going to be happening in the world to what even is going to be happening in the church. And you say, wait a minute, you just said the church won't be there. There's still going to be people coming to Christ. There's going to be people that figure out the Bible was true. He said, they're going to deliver you to tribulation. Who is they? Some of the people that will deliver people to tribulation were people they were in church with the week before who've been caused to wonder. They've fallen away. They'll deliver you over to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations for one reason. Because of my name. Jesus says, because you claim the name of Christ, they're going to persecute you. So what happens when they say, are you a Christian? And you say, yes. They're going to kill you, or they're going to persecute you, or they will imprison you. If you say, you know what, no, I was just trying to check in this thing out, but count me out. Those are going to be the ones that aren't persecuted. They won't be killed. They won't be put in prison. And those will be some of the very ones who have been caused to roam and wonder. And you say, well, were they Christians to start with? John put it this way in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19. He said, they went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown 
that they are not all of us. That's going to be happening at the end of time. There's going to be people who are religious, claim to be Christians when the going gets tough, they're going to get going. And he says, understand something. This is what's going to happen. I want you to be aware of this because I don't want you to be misled. I don't want you to be tricked, trapped, deceived. This is all going to happen. In fact, many will fall away. Literally like an animal caught in a death trap. Many in these days will fall away. They're going to betray one another. They're going to hate one another. Many false prophets will arise. Literally pretended foretellers. False prophets. People that will stand up with the Word of God and preach it. But they're not preaching the Word of God. They're preaching some new philosophy or their own opinion. Many are going to arise and will mislead many. And because lawlessness has increased, people's love is going to grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. You're not saved because you endured. You endured because you were saved. You endured because you've been empowered by God and the Holy Spirit to last through this stuff. And that will be the indication, that will be the proof that you're a genuine believer. That all sounds like bad news. People say, well, why do you think the church won't be here? Because that's the way I hope it works. All right? But be prepared if it doesn't work that way. I always used to kid people and they say, well, are you a pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, amillennialist? I used to say I'm a pan-millennialist. Pan-millennialist. What does that mean? It means it's all going to pan out in the end. From my study of Scripture, I, I believe the church is gone. I think that's why this happens. But I think there's still a testimony. I think Revelation indicates that, and I think chapter 24, verse 14 indicates the same thing. Now, if we are still here, don't look at me and say, <laughs> and i got to tell you, it, there may be persecution that comes before we're gone. It's already happening, folks. People are being killed on planet Earth right now. ISIS is just... The newest thing, that are killing people for one reason, the name of Jesus. So persecution's already here. It's going to get worse. But here's the good news. Verse 14. This gospel of the kingdom will be, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. So what's going to happen? This message of the good news. The word good news, the gospel, is euangelion. It's a Greek word. It used to mean when you came and gave good news to somebody, they gave you a reward or a prize. And so that was what it originally meant. But it came to mean anytime there's good news, they called it euangelion. It's when the angels on the hillside with the shepherds said, good news, a Savior's been born, Christ the Lord. That's the word good news, Jesus has come. Well, that's what's going to be proclaimed until the end of time. And people have debated, books have been written over, what does this mean? What groups is he talking about? Does it just mean ethnic groups? Does it mean nations? Because we pretty well hit all the nations, but there's still people groups that do not have the gospel in their language. But here's what you can know. This verse hadn't been fulfilled yet. Because once it is, then the end comes. So what do we do? 
Well, we certainly don't stand gaping our mouth open in heaven waiting. Well, I ain't doing anything else. Listen, if you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow, what would you do? Number one, go have a good lunch. Put it on your credit card. Walk in. I'm buying lunch for everybody as long as I can charge it. We don't know if he's coming back tomorrow. So what do we do? Well, don't go run up your credit cards. What do we do? We tell people about Jesus. Because as long as there's still hope and time, there's opportunity to tell people the good news. Jesus Christ loves you. He came from heaven to die on a cross to pay the penalty for your sin so that you don't have to because you can't. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. That's what we tell people until God takes us home. One way or the other, we're going to see Jesus one day. If we're here when He returns, great. But if not, you breathe your last breath, you're going to be in the presence of God. Then, the end will come. Not before then, and not after then. That's when the end is going to come. My favorite quote from Corey Ten Boone is this, Never be afraid to trust an unknown future to a known God. Let's pray together. Lord, what a sobering word to recognize that there's coming a day when things are going to get worse than they even are right now. And yet it's all part of your plan. We as believers should not be sidetracked should not be misled, but you've given us a job to do. Live out the gospel. Live our lives in such a way that it reflects the mercy of God and the grace of God. And tell people about the reason for the hope that's within us. Thank you that ultimately it's good news. It's real good. God, even though we don't know the future, we certainly know the one who does. And so we trust you with our future because we know that you are good. And we pray this in Christ's name.